University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 16. When Jennifer and I were prayerfully considering if God was calling us to UBC, one of the matters that perpetuated um, this, this thought for us moving forward was the church's unique nature, to think critically, to live creatively, and to love continually. And for UBC to place such great value on characteristics is quite peculiar. You see, for many faith communities, they think about only what is known, practice only what is familiar, and love those that only fit into their comfort zone. So I do find UBC to be quite peculiar. And I hope you will receive that with the utmost affirmation and compliments. I like what is uncommon. I like what is distinct. And it's these things that lead to creativity and innovation. So over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at these three distinctive peculiarities of UBC. Think critically, live creatively, and love continually. And we'll take two weeks to look at each of these peculiarities of the church. Today, we're going to begin with think critically. And for this, we're going to watch a video. And I invite you to allow yourself to let loose and to laugh, for laughing is essential for curing all of our well-being. Let's watch this together. Mathias, son of Deuteronomy of Gath? Why, say yes. 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 You have been found guilty by the elders of the town of uttering the name of our Lord, and so as a blasphemer, you are to be stoned to death. Look, I'd had a lovely supper, and all I said to my wife was, that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. me! He said it again. Did you hear him? women here today? Very well. By virtue of the authority, this did it mean. Oh, Leo, we haven't started yet. Come on. Who threw that? Who threw that stone? Come on. <laughs> Sorry, I thought we started. Go to the back. Oh, dear. Always one, isn't there? Now, where were we? Look, I don't think it ought to be blasphemy. Just saying Jehovah. <laughs> You're making it worse for yourself. Making it worse? How could it be worse? Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. I'm warning you, if you say Jehovah once more, strike. Who threw that? Come on, who threw that? <laughs> Was it you? Yes. Right. Well, you did say Jehovah. Oh. 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 Come on. 
so. Do you understand? Even, and I want to make this absolutely clear, even if they do say Jehovah. <laughs> so theology matters. Take, for example, if you believe that saying the name Jehovah is blasphemy, it might lead you to stone someone to death. Imagine the unthinkable conclusions that theology has brought people to, such as excommunication, burning others at the stake, igniting a crusade, extermination of a, quote, inferior race. Theology matters. Theology is the Greek word theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning word or reason. So quite literally, theology is a reasoned discourse about God. Theology is a human effort to rationalize and come away with an understanding of who God is, how God functions in the world, who we are in relation to God, and how we ought to function in the world as a response. So therefore, theology matters. We all too often will leave deep and critical thinking to the professional theologians, the professional pastors, the academics. But when you stop and really think about it, your theological conclusions shape the way you live your life, the way that you view other people, the way that you interact with others. Therefore, all of us are theologians. Theology matters because it is an invitation to think critically. But how much of our theology is spoon-fed? How much of what we live day to day is just a regurgitation of what other people have told us we should believe when God invites us to think critically, to think deeply, to think theologically? So where do we begin with all of this? Let's start with a narrative that shows us sometimes our theological assumptions about God can be wrong and lead to really, really stupid things. Luke 4.16 reads this, Jesus went to Nazareth where he was brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recover sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physicians, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Skip down to verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow on the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowds and went on his way. I love that Jesus gives one of the most beautiful and poignant and revolutionary speeches in his hometown of Nazareth, and their response is to try to murder him. Jesus is coming off the starting place of his public ministry, his baptism, his 40 days in the desert. He returns to his home region of Galilee, to his hometown of Nazareth. And you can just imagine him standing there among the people 
with this overarching goal and purpose of his ministry. And so he proclaims, good to see you, Aunt Bertha. Hey, Jesse. Hey, buddy. It's good to see you. Hey, I just want to set things clear about what God has called me to do. God has empowered me to proclaim and usher in the kingdom of God. It's not a kingdom like you've ever seen in human history. It is a kingdom for all people who will come and follow me, the sick, the broken, the helpless, both physically and spiritually. Imagine Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, added to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, added to Churchill's We Shall Fight on the Beaches, then add in Gene Hackman's We're Going to Be Winners speech from Hoosiers, and maybe even Mel Gibson's speech from Braveheart. Dump all those in and then magnify at times a gazillion. That's the importance of Jesus' message here. Jesus is saying, is a groundbreaking, spiritually shifting, politically and socially provocative message. And what do the Nazareans respond with? Let's kill him. Why? Well, Jesus messed with their theological assumptions. Jesus ruffled the feathers of their politics and their religious and social constructs. Jesus did the equivalent of taking their world, turning it upside down, and shaking it a bit. How would you respond? If Jesus' hometown, consisting of poor people who, whose message would, should be received with hope, how should we respond? How would the people in the metropolitan areas respond to Jesus? How would those who couldn't get on board with his theological shift that Jesus was making respond? Well, we know how they responded. They put him on a cross three years later. The word heretic comes from the Greek word hertaikos, which means able to choose. Heretic is one who chooses a different type of doctrine than what is normal. Jesus is a heretic to these people. We might even offer to his resume cliff evader, because I still can't figure out how that theologically happened. It's all too easy, though, for us to look at these Nazareans and for us to, to judge them. We can also do this in moments of church history where we see violence and torture to squeeze quite literally out of people conversions through the eyes of disdain. Honestly, it's quite unthinkable, but we're all linked together. Humanity has a nasty history of responding to so-called heretics, including crucifying Jesus and martyring his followers, torturing for conversion, burning, draw and quarter, beheading, on and on and on. And we look at these folks with such disdain in the New Testament. How dare they crucify our Lord? But if we really stop and think about it, it's not that difficult of a task. If we're more honest with ourselves at the number of times we have misshapen our image and understanding of God, think about that for just a second. How easy and how often do we misshape and misunderstand God? If we stop and put ourselves in the shoes of these Nazareans, then we might look at them with a bit more grace. These were people who grew up with Jesus, who played with Jesus, who purchased some of his carpentry work. These are the people who knew Mary and Joseph. It's no wonder that they couldn't wrap their minds around this message and this invitation that Jesus was bringing into their lives. No wonder they were confused. But I wonder how often we are confused with Jesus. How often do we limit the impact of his promises and his words and the way that he lived his life and called us to live our lives? This is especially true when it comes to 
our relationships, our inability to forgive others, our financial planning, our level of comfort? How willing are we to shape our theology around our political opinions instead of our political opinions being shaped by our theological convictions? I'm not getting into politics, but the issues of of immigration, of faith, and gender equality, and foreign policy, the rights of others responding to the marginalized and to the poor are found in Scripture. The problem is these words of Jesus don't fit into our upper middle class American perspectives. So how often do we twist and change Jesus to fit into a little mascot that we desire, that fits into our box? We are guilty more often than not than we care to admit of shaping our theology to fit into what we desire and to what we want to see in the world and to how it affects our day-to-day living. And this happens on the far right and the middle and the left of all people theologically. The degree of religiosity, no matter if conservative or liberal, it's all too easy shaped by us. As theologian John Caputo wrote, theology is idolatry if it means that we, what we say about God, instead our, let me start that again. Theology is idolatry if it means what we say about God instead of letting ourselves be addressed by what God has to say to us. Faith is idolatrous if it's rigidly self-certain but it's not if we're softened by the waters of doubt. To begin to truly understand um, how we shape our theology and how we tend to think uncritically, we must agree that we all bring a certain bias when it comes to our understanding of God. Everything that we see, think, speak, and do each day is seen through a particular lens and through a particular bias. These perspectives shape by, by what we have been taught by what we have been told is true and untrue, by what we have experienced, by all the things that we've witnessed in our lives. Let me give you a a safe and soft example. Uh, This is uh, LeBron James and Michael Jordan. If I were to ask and take a poll in here, who would be the greatest of all time? Some would say Michael Jordan, some would say LeBron James. If you grew up in the 1980s and 1990s, you would probably say Michael because he won six titles. But have you ever considered that the marketing of Michael Jordan in the 1980s and 1990s play a way into the way you see Michael? What about the fact that for nearly two decades, Michael has been associated with Nike and McDonald's, Hanes and Gatorade? Did you know that Michael still makes about $80 million a year off those endorsements? We haven't even talked about pro stars. Yes, I'm referring to the 13-episode cartoon featuring Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, and Bo Jackson. Anybody remember that one? I am all by myself. Space jams. Maybe we really shouldn't talk about space jams. But objectively, we should look at basketball, the style of basketball, the level of competition. We should look at character. Did you know that Michael Jordan often punched teammates in the face and it was said to be, quote, competitive edge? What about pre-Scotty Pippen and Phil Jackson errors of Michael? Yet one thing is clear. As basketball fans, we bring a particular bias when we look at this argument between Michael and LeBron. LeBron is the greatest of all time. Therefore, (laughs) what kind of biases do we bring to the way we see the world, the way we see politics, the way we see economics and culture and scripture and faith and theology? From time to time, if we're honest, we bring all of these things into our understanding of God. 
It shapes the way we see the world. It shapes the way we perceive God and how God wants us to interact in the world. And with all these biases we bring into our understanding of God and how God wants us to function in the world, the challenging question we must ask is, do we tend to shape our theology or does our theology shape us? Really stop and think about that for just a second. Do we tend to shape our theology or does our theology shape us? Much, if not most, of our theology is shaped by the way that we understand Scripture. And if we bring a certain bias when it comes to reading Scripture, as my grandmother would say, the proof is in the pudding. Take, for example, the law of Moses, often used to condemn certain groups of people within our culture, using the phrase, the Bible says so. Well, let's play that game for just a second. Deuteronomy has a lot of interesting verses that we tend to ignore. I sure hope nobody in this space is wearing clothing that has two different types of fabric. According to Leviticus 19.19, that is an abomination. I know no one in here has eaten shrimp or lobster or crab or oysters or clams or crawdads. Leviticus 19.10, it says it's an abomination. Anyone here have a stubborn or rebellious son who is not obeying anything you said? Well, according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, he should be taken outside of the city and stoned to death. We all here have savored the deliciousness that is bacon and barbecue and pork chops. That too is an abomination. Of course, no one here has ever held a grudge against someone or sought after revenge. No one here has ever been flaky in their promises and never upheld their word. We all should be condemned because according to the law of Moses, we shouldn't enjoy football because coming in contact of pigs in their skin is an abomination. That's the Old Testament, I hear you say. Well, according to the New Testament, women shouldn't be allowed to speak in church and certainly shouldn't teach men. Anyone here wearing expensive jewelry or nice clothes? Paul says we shouldn't own any of these things. Jesus must have been joking when he said that we should sell our possession and give to those who are in need. I'm sure no one here has ever called anyone an idiot or a fool. And I'm a little worried for those of us that have more than two shirts because Jesus did tell us to take off one and give it to someone else who's in need. Are you starting to see that we have a particular bias when it comes to Scripture? We easily pick up the Scriptures that work for us in judging other people, and we easily put down the ones that don't fit into our context. As Brian D. McLaren wrote, the church has little idea how unorthodox it is at a given moment. If a church can yet be perfectly orthodox, it can, with the Holy Spirit's help and by the grace of God, be perpetually reformable. So I want us to come back to this idea that theology shapes us. Theology matters. Theology is an invitation for us to think deeply. It's an invitation into entering into a place of spiritual discernment, into spiritual formation by which we are shaped by God. We are shaped together as a community by collectively coming together to understand our common experiences that help us gain a unique perspective of God. As Henry Nouwen put it, theological formation is the gradual and often painful discovery of God's incomprehensibility. You can be competent in many things, but you cannot be competent in God. So if we tend to shape our theology, instead of our theology shapes us, what we must do is be willing to step back, just like the Nazareans in this moment, to recognize just how many times, if we're honest, we've tried to crucify Christ 
again and again and again by pushing away his teachings, his practice, and his invitation. So one of the things I am inviting us to do this morning is this, to think critically. Thinking critically is an invitation to examine what you believe and why you believe it. It's an invitation to challenge to think critically because examining our theological assumptions is part of following Christ. Christ's invitation, the word repentance means change your way of thinking and living. And this isn't a one-time act in our life where we, quote, repent and follow Christ. It's a daily invitation to rethink all of our assumptions about God. Paul Tillich put it this way, being human means asking questions of one's own being and living under the impact of the answers given to this question. And conversely, being human means receiving answers to the questions of one's own being and asking questions under the impact of the answers. I'm inviting us as a faith community to think and to think critically to process a variety of perspectives and come away with a more formed understanding of why we believe what we believe. Did you know that churches across America have recently engaged in, in acts resulting in people leaving a church or a church splitting over the following issues? Whether the church can and should use cran grape juice instead of regular grape juice for communion, whether the church should have black, tan, or brown filing cabinets in the office. That's an important theological matter. I heard of one church that ended up splitting because one church member hid the vacuum from the other members of the Building and Grounds Committee. One church in 2016 split over the length of the worship pastor's beard, some making the argument that Leviticus gives a direct invitation to the exact length. We can often forget the arguments around fake plants versus real plants, the color of the carpet in the sanctuary, the types of coffee served on Sunday morning, whether drinks can or should be allowed outside of the fellowship, if the pastoral staff should wear robes on Sunday morning, churches even fight over whether a portrait of Jesus should be in the narthex. Because nothing says the unity of Christ like fighting over a painting of Jesus. You see, thinking critically matters because we often tend to come to conclusions that divide us. Let that sit there for just a second. When gone unchecked, when we choose not to think critically, when we choose not to think critically as a community of people, it often can divide us. Take a look around you in this space real quick. Just really take, take a gander around. There's some, there's some beautiful folks in here. What you see around you is a group of people of different journeys and different experiences who've come from different places. To say that there is diversity among this community is a bit of an understatement. Who you are, where you've come from, the relationships and events of your life, the choices you make play a key role in shaping who you are and how you understand God. There should be diversity in the church. Yet we are united under Christ. The early church leaders with all these theological perspectives came together and with the Nicene and Apostle Creed said these are the essential aspects of our faith. Things outside of these things are non-essential. Yet how often do we let the non-essential things of our faith divide us? 
UBC should be a community that's united on the essentials and celebrate the non-essential things we do not have in common. As we think critically, we should not be a community that allows these non-essential things to divide us, to fracture us, to cause disunity in the fellowship of Christ, but allow these things to make us better, to make us whole, to gain a larger and broader understanding of how God works in the world by sitting down to listen to the diversity of perspectives and opinions and still walk away and say, I love you. Jesus did say that is the most important command to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So this is an invitation to be honest and to think critically about your faith journey, to think critically with others as we try to figure out this whole faith journey. As one author put it, if our faith does not throw us into the arms of the world, if it does not lead us to our experiences of responsibility, of love, celebration and our commitments to transformation, then whatever we call it, we have nothing but an empty shelf.